You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 164. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. We are back starting this week's episode with a discussion on interest rate hikes, the war in Ukraine, and more. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, Aaron answers a listener question on EPAM system, symbol EPAM on the NASDAQ, which provides digital platform engineering and software development services to companies around the globe. The high-growth software business has been significantly impacted near-term by the conflict in Ukraine. We give some details on what and how to proceed. I answer a listener question on CECOM Satellite System, CMI, and the TSX Venture, which develops and deploys commercial-grade mobile auto-deploying satellite-based technology for the delivery of two-way high-speed internet, VoIP, and video services into vehicles and other uh, and other areas. I give our current thoughts on this catch-rich microcap, which pays a 2.3% dividend. The listener wants to know, is there value once again in the company? Just before we went live with this show, a client asked for our take on Snowflake, symbol S-N-O-W, on the NASDAQ, which sells data analytics and management tools that run on cloud computing platforms such as Amazon Web Services. I'll give you my quick thoughts on the company and the decline in the share price today. Finally, Brennan answers a quick question on Lucera Diamonds in a Your Stock Our Take, symbol L-U-C on the TSX an independent producer of large, exceptional quality diamonds from its Caraway mine in Botswana. Does this profitable diamond mine producer offer value? He will let you know. So I'd like to welcome my co-hosts, Brennan and Aaron. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Good morning. Yes, preparing for our uh, trip uh, in about, uh, what is it, a week, 10 days time to California to do our research uh, a research, to a research conference there in California, there's 500 companies. We're going to probably interview 40 to 50 management teams, and uh, it'll be good to be back on the road, like we said yeah, it'll be fun. before. And there are a couple of companies that that we've had under coverage for a few years that are going to be down there as well. So great to be able yep, to sit yep. down in front of those management teams. And it's it's been a while, so... Yeah, never haven't seen them face to face. Been a lot of Zoom calls and phone calls, but uh, we'll get to sit down with the teams face to face. So it'll be interesting. And Brennan, I'll almost get to do that for the yeah, first time, bet. right? Yeah, it will be my first time. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think you had Brennan, some Brennan's meetings. Never, yeah, that's right. Brennan never went yeah. to an LD Micro conference nope. with us no, down there right. or anything. So this is Roth. Yeah, like yeah. never been to any of those. So it'll be a new experience for you and. Uh, a learning for experience, sure. And I'm as sure. you guys are, or definitely Ryan's aware, I'm a little nervous to uh, travel internationally by myself, but uh, I'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll... the U.S. is, is so darn international. Well, you know, for, for me, it yeah, is but... for me. You're you're almost thirty, Brennan. I so know. Maybe not I know. the time. But... It's, uh, 
Yeah, time to put my big boy pants on. No, it's good, it though. It's, it's right. good to get you out out of your comfort zone. But, I, yeah, it will be, you know, the, the fact, but traveling with us can be a little I bit I think what's really going to build some character for Brennan is when we abandon him <laughs> in some random city in the U.S. And, mm-hmm. and he yeah. needs to find his own way back um, without a passport yeah. or any money or resources of any I'll kind. I'll just cry. That's really just the rite of passage. It's just the rite of passage to build build some characters. So. <laughs> I think we may have done that before. We're just going to get an Uber and you'll be like, where are we driving to? Oh, we just want to show you the just sites. And off. then we'll say, okay, get Last out here. Last person we'll we did that to, we never spoke to again. We wow. never heard yeah. from him again. But um, you know, hopefully they'll I be see how it is. fine. Uh, yeah, there are some road stories, but uh, we'll try not to get to them right now. No. All right, like I said, just before we went live, a client asked for our take kind of on some breaking news on a company called Snowflake, symbol S-N-O-W, so just snow on the NASDAQ. They sell data analytics and management tools that run on cloud computing platforms like Amazon Web Services or AWS. So for context, Snowflake pulled off the largest initial public offering or IPO ever by a software company in September 2020. Snowflake IPO, the, their IPO raised $3.4 billion. Uh, the stock has retreated just ahead of the earnings, the 2022 earnings, uh, 22%. The stock dropped another you know, 16 18% today on the quarterly report. So, you know, back in November, I think the stock traded up to, you know, just under $400 today. It's around 219 so almost, you know, cut in half. Again, in the quarter, Snowflake, they offered stellar revenue growth, but it trades at a high multiple despite the correction in its, in its stock since, uh, since November. Again, like I said, on this quarter, that was on display. Strong revenue growth. Losses narrowed, but we're still present. Um, it's growing at its scale is tremendous. I mean, if you look back in 2019, it's growth. 96 million in revenues up to 2020 264 million in revenues 2021 592 uh trailing just around a billion in revenue so tremendous growth there but you know you look at the valuations on the stock right now the company on a there's no earnings cash flow in this business so on a price to sales basis it's about 78 times on a price to sales basis if you look forward Analyst estimates on this stock are looking for the company on, this is just on an adjusted basis, to report profitability in 2023. But, you know, off off of that multiple, I mean, the company trades at a, a massive amount off that multiple, in the hundreds off that multiple of earnings. And, you know, looking forward, the price to sales is around 40. So strong growth, but when you have a miss on a company, and the miss is just that they, you know, they did narrow their loss, but the miss here is that they their revenue is projected to grow at a little bit slower rate than they had originally forecasted due to some reasons that are very explainable and, and reasonable, uh, but it is going to grow at a slightly slower rate, still a very high rate, but when you trade at such a premium, you know, the market is punishing you right now particularly when you're not a company that's profitable or has a bottom line there and hasn't proven the ability to do that. So Snowflake, well thought of, very high multiples. Even with the correction, you're still trading at relatively high multiples. So that is why we continue to expect a number of these companies, even high-quality companies in the software industry that trade at such premium multiples. If there is any misstep, 
they will get hit hard in the market. And we continue to track that and foresee that going forward. And this is just really where, where valuation does matter because you could have a company, as you said, I mean, maybe it's growing its revenues at 50%, 60-70%, and it gets a multiple that requires it to continue to grow at that pace. But very, very few companies can can maintain that pace of growth for any period of time. So even if that growth rate backs off to 30-40%, which is still a phenomenally high growth just rate. Just tremendous. Yeah, growth. there's, there's still and 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 probably very difficult to sustain for almost any company um even if it backs off to that level you're still you're you're usually going to get a a um a pullback in the share price and a revaluation of of that high growth company yeah. so i just and um, you're not and again we're not seeing a 10 percent pullback we're seeing 45 to 60 you mm-hmm. know you're seeing like massive pullbacks and then at that rate you're still looking at the company and saying well they better keep growing at 40 percent, right like that's the that that's what that is how far valuations got in certain companies uh, to the extreme premium. So you know these companies, if you have any concern over you know not hitting their growth rates, that's where you see some vulnerability. Yeah, the Nasdaq 100, just as as an aside. Um, so this is a very tech heavy uh, index, the the top 100 stocks in the Nasdaq. So it's down about 15 percent from its peak in November, and that's around November of last year, where we saw the the tech sector overall particularly in the U.S. market peak. Um, so about 15% down for the NASDAQ 100, but that doesn't really tell the full story because a lot of the larger companies like the Microsofts, the Alphabets, they're not down that much. They've actually been able to sustain um, their share price is much better. But we put, did put together, I know we've, we've spoken about this in previous podcasts, we have put together a list of 40 of the highest growth technology companies in the U.S., profitable, growth-oriented businesses. And on average, they're down about 35 40% from that period of time. And in many cases, these companies are continuing to grow, uh, and there's been you know minimal impact or no impact to their growth strategy, but it's just their growth outlook. But it's just, just really a testament to how you know these were some of the highest value companies um, in the market, market starts to recognize that high valuation, that overvaluation even. And um, this is the type of loss that uh, temporary loss anyways, investors can experience when they when they stop paying attention to to what a company is trading for on a price to earnings or price to cash flow basis. Yeah, it just gives people a shot in the face that basically says valuations do matter. And we're seeing that and we'll probably continue to see that throughout this year and you know going forward. As people are reminded that you just can't pay anything for even you know a, a great growth company and the Microsofts, ironically, the Microsofts, the Alphabets, um, some of these large tech companies, which are still amazing growth-oriented businesses that have not pulled back as much since November. These are companies that really they weren't as expensive as a lot of the, the mid cap or just regular large cap tech companies. So they were still trading in that thirty to thirty five times earnings range. Um, even as tech multiples were, were peaking, whereas a lot of these other companies that have taken big hits, I mean, they're trading up to, you know, 60, 70, 80, over 100 times earnings in some cases. If, or times sales. Or times sales. Like some that's, of them that's, don't even yeah, have, so like have yeah, earnings, yeah, another, right? Another level. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
do you want to move on to looking at some of the global macro issues? Sure. Why don't we Why don't yeah. we talk about that? We can I talk think it's about important. Aaron it's it's on everybody's on everybody's mind. Obviously, we've been getting a lot of questions about um, what's been going on in Eastern Europe in Ukraine right now. Um, absolutely tragic situation, and I think that it's it's really taken people um, by surprise. I mean, I didn't expect. You know, I think that the the expectation was that there may have been some fighting, but that it would be more contained maybe to the eastern border of Ukraine. I never would have expected this level of of invasion from Russia. And I think that most people agree. And it's it's surprisingly hasn't really. And this is one of the questions that a lot of people have is, is why hasn't it impacted the overall market more? And I think it's impacted certain segments of the market. But if you look at just overall market index, it seems to really had a muted effect, which you would think, given everything that's going on there, the potential even possibly for it to expand outside of Ukraine. I'm not saying that that's really a a reason that that's not an expectation, but there's, there's a lot going on there. And then veiled threats, of course, from Putin talking about, you know, his nuclear arsenal. So why hasn't had a larger impact on the market? And, um, you know, it's it's really difficult to say, but there are a few things. I mean, certainly in Canada, energy makes up a large segment of our stock market. Uh, energy prices have only gone up since since the since the invasion started. So, you know, Russia is one of the largest exporters of of oil and gas in the world. The sanctions on Russia that's that's going to restrict supply of oil and gas. So you would expect you know those companies to not really drop that much. In some ways, certain areas of the market had already pulled back quite a bit before this started. So there may have been um, a lot of bad news already factored into prices. You know, some people are saying that with all of the economic uncertainty that this could potentially cause, that um, perhaps central banks aren't going to raise interest rates as much as previously expected. So that could also weigh into it. But it could even just be that that the market is expecting... Um, you know, a quicker resolution, or is maybe not fat fully factoring in the full risks. What 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 are what are your guys' thoughts? Yeah, no, and, and uh, I I just reiterate what Aaron was saying. Like our hearts and our prayers and our thoughts go out to anybody you know affected by it in the Ukraine. Anybody who has family there, obviously. Um, you know, we're talking the economic side of it here, but you know, there's a human tragedy side that you know that really is above any and all it's, it's unimaginable and, it's it's yeah, absolutely yeah. unimaginable when i said that that it surprised me the level of 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 invasion that we've seen is i just couldn't imagine that i mean you're dealing with you know a, a dictator i suppose you know anything's possible but i just didn't think that that it would get this far and it's it's just absolutely i mean like many people, I'm 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 following the news, and and I'm sure you guys are, and it's just it's it's I mean it's heartbreaking what they have to go through, but and but the courage that they're showing is just absolutely incredible. I mean, yeah. uh, it's just it's absolutely incredible the courage that 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 the Ukrainian people are showing. Yeah, and and I think the points you went through as to why the markets haven't been, you know. T- dramatically affected as of yet um you know the the markets that are already been in correction mode um you know here uh you're seeing some bump because of the price and energy in canada um and and you know just the fact that you know people 
the global uncertainty may lead to less rates and rates had been a big fear. I think those are the, the other thing would be, I mean, the, the markets have not military conflict has not been a major factor in market movements for decades. Uh, like I think since the fall of the Soviet Union, really investors have enjoyed decades long global stability uh, in terms of military con- conflict. And, you know, but this now puts kind of global relations back on maybe investors' minds. And can this lead to people thinking about like a second Cold War potentially? Like there's, and it, I think there, I think that I, I, maybe the, the markets just, you know, haven't been used to that type of um, tension or, or the threat of war affecting them that they, I don't know if they're just not used to it. Uh, or not used to what it, or how it could play out because it really hasn't played out. I and mean, we had nine eleven, but it wasn't. Yeah, you know, it what I mean, it was a terrorist attack. I mean, you can classify it many ways, but and the markets, you know, opened that day significantly down when they had there was four days close of the markets, I believe, and then they opened significantly down. But in the you know days following that, there was a significant recovery. And it was you know in terms of the markets that they, they moved on from that economically faster than you might have projected um but there is now for the last several years we've seen you know frictions between the rest of the world and china the u.s and china um are those going to go away um you know can there be another cold war type situation i mean that's I mean, some of the impacts that I would see is, you know, and we've already seen that Russia is the third largest producer of oil. Energy prices have surged. Uh, The United States and European allies have frozen uh, Russian central bank assets held by U.S. financial institutions, making it harder for central banks to support the ruble. There's been sanctions essentially barring some Russian banks from international transactions. There's corporations that are you know exiting russia bp the oil giant said it would exit its 20 percent stake in the russian state-controlled oil company rosneft um norway sovereign wealth fund for example um one of the world's largest said it would divest itself of the russian of russian investments so these are many of the impacts that are happening right now so are are we in for a period of sanctions and power diplomacy it, it looks like we could be i'm not sure or or will it or will there be so much pressure on russia that you know you could see some kind of revolt within country I'm well not, that that, that i think would be is is the hope of all yeah. of these sanctions that it it, it disrupts yeah. um Putin's power base there and it makes him look weak and, and it puts it puts pressure on people to to challenge him whether or not that will happen I mean it's it's, yeah, it's a counter to, to that I've heard people raise the fact that oh well he's Putin's gonna now with his propaganda in country say this is you know the West against us this is what I've been telling you for all along they're they're completely against us look at the sanctions look at how cut off we are from the rest of the world um, you know in my opinion that may work at a time where you don't have access to the internet and you can completely control, uh, you know, I don't think that they, he can, or that his regime can control the message that much in a time where they can look on a cell phone and, and see that maybe this is not exactly what is the rest of the world thinks or what is happening in the rest of the world, uh, and, and where it's being framed in the rest of the, and it, 
So I, I'm not sure if that can com- that complete level of control and then completely taking controlling the message can be done today. I'm not I'm not sure if that can be done. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't think it can. And like I was even talking to my dad about that, and you know I went over and hung out with my dad, and that's what he was doing. He was holding up his phone, saying, "I think Putin has underestimated the power of these little devices." And I I do think that. I mean, he can try to control it as much as he can, but uh, you know it is pretty crazy. Um, you know just w- what you and can the, see online and. Yeah. On. Well, I was saying say? your dad was ha- holding up his landline. That was the difference, right? <laughs> no, no, no. He's uh, he's actually got a newer phone than me myself. Probably but, than me uh, too. So. Yeah, he's quite the the tech guru, I guess. I, in, in any event, I really just think it's 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 impossible to say, and that's that's yeah. leads to another question, totally. and that is, people have asked, you know, should I just hold off on investing until there's more certainty? And I, I don't think that that is necessarily a good course of action either. Um, there's always a reason to to hold off on investing. I think as long as you're you're putting your money into good solid companies, if you have capital to deploy, you don't have to do it all tomorrow. You know, you can space those investments out over a period of time. But the fact of the matter is, there's just no possible way. I mean, there's so many different directions that this crisis can can move towards um, both positive and negative. And if you're waiting for the best time for the ideal time to put your capital to work for you, you'll you'll be waiting constantly because there's always a reason to be concerned. Um, And also remember as well that cash is not a risk-free investment either, especially in a period of high inflation. So it's just really impossible to know what's going to happen right now. We just have to wait and see. Be cautious. Be smart. Um, yeah, and our strategy all the time is is if if this is like we have clients that come to us every day and say um, I want to start investing, I want to buy some quality individual stocks, or I want to divest from my funds, fund heavy portfolio. And, and what do we say? Um, well, you don't buy twenty five stocks today. You're going to take eighteen to twenty four months. Buy two to four to start, and then two to three every you know, three months and build that portfolio up. So if you're starting today and you're worried about, you know, the the global situation, that is a way to start. That's the way you should start at all times, but it would be the same way to start now. And if you just look at um, UBS Global Wealth Management uh, did some analysis on the S&P 500 since 1945 and they found that markets usually fell during the first week of key military conflicts, but in 14 of 18 cases, they rose within three months. So should you not invest now because you're fearful of what is going on? Well, in 14 of 18 cases, you know, over the past, you know, since 1945, the market three months later had risen. So, you know, I'm not, we're not exactly saying that that is what is going to happen this time, but, you know, if history being our guide, it's been actually a time to buy. And that doesn't mean you buy all 25 stocks now, but you can still start your portfolio. And there's, like Aaron said, there's always a million reasons not to enter the market. Uh, but if you look at what the market has done back 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, um, buying good quality businesses uh, in the market over that time has been the right decision. And we think it will be if we look 10, 15 25, 50 years going forward from here. So do we want to look at uh, moving on from that, look at the Bank of Canada raising interest rates 25 basis points to uh, 0.5%? 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, we can we can touch on that. I, I think it was largely expected. Some people um, thought maybe due to the to the crisis in Ukraine right now and some of the global economic uncertainty, they might hold off. But they they held off at the last meeting. Really, rates are so low. I think that they they have to go up from here. Uh, even if you just look over the past ten years, and we've been talking about rates being low for ten years, they're still sitting at almost historic lows, even over this period. Really, the only time they were lower was during the the trough of the of the pandemic, where they they got to 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 you know absolutely bottom levels. But it's it's a lot of times when people think a lot a lot of people are thinking like, well, if the Bank of Canada, if the U.S. Federal Reserve are talking about increasing rates, then that means that they're going to continue to increase, and that we're not going to go back onto a trend of of rising interest rates, which is not necessarily the case. I don't believe that that's going to be the case myself without trying to predict where interest rates are going from now. They're at such low levels, uh, they have to move up. Now, one of the reasons why people are, or the, the, the central banks are wanting to move interest rates up would be to battle inflation. Because uh, as everybody knows, inflation has been a major factor, some of the highest inflation rates in the past 30 years. Now, to an extent, I think that may be successful, but there's going to be limits to their ability to combat inflation. In my personal opinion, a lot of the inflation we're experiencing is coming from particularly in the short term. Right? Particularly in the short term, yeah. cost push inflation, higher energy prices, higher um, metal prices, higher uh, supp- the supply chain issues as well. So, really, there's going to be a limit to they. They have to do something to try and dampen demand somewhat so inflation doesn't get completely out of control but there's going to be a limit to what they're able to do on the on the cost side of things i mean the increasing interest rates is not going to deal with the supply chain issues that's not going to that's not going to um impact the 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 supply chain uh, and the and the extra costs from that uh, in terms of energy prices the only way that higher interest rates are going to really have an impact on energy prices is if you completely um, decimate economic growth, which I don't think that they want to do. So yes, rates are going to come up a bit. I don't think that we're going to go anywhere close to historic levels, even over the past 10 years. And then, of course, people will ask, well, where does this put investors with respect to dividend stocks? Should, should an investor avoid in putting their money to dividend producing companies if rates are going up. And my answer to that would be, well, if you're looking at a dividend stock that is very low to minimal growth or no growth and just pays a yield, then that's really a proxy to a bond. I can see those types of companies coming under pressure. Although when you look at the when you look at the the government bonds right now, a 10-year Canada bond is yielding about 1.8%. So if you want to get in, income out of your portfolio over and above inflation, you may have to gravitate still to some of these high-yield, low-growth companies to do that. But really, what we advise people to do is invest in companies, invest in dividend companies that are also growing. The business is growing, they're growing their dividends, and that helps to, that really differentiates the dividend stock from, from a bond, which does not grow it's coupon payments, right? When you purchase a bond, you essentially get the same coupon payment. But when you purchase a dividend growth stock, you're getting a nice attractive yield that is probably paying you far more than a government bond uh, and a company that's reinvesting back in its business and growing that dividend over time. So this is this is really what we would focus on. And as long as that business continues to grow, as long as there's a growth element, and in some of these cases, 
companies that we've recommended actually have indexation to inflation. So as inflation rises, they are able to pass that on to their customers just through contracts or, or uh, regulated rates of return. So there are opportunities to invest in great dividend growth stocks, and then you mix those companies with some more growth-oriented businesses that perhaps don't pay a dividend. That's really how you build a portfolio that is positioned to do well in a variety of different economic scenarios. Yeah, without a doubt. Even if you factor in three additional uh, 25 basis point hikes, you get to 1.25%. Um, you know, your GIC at 1.5 or 2%, uh, does that, even with the dividend companies that aren't raising, which would be the ones like Aaron said, that more proxy to a bond, um, that aren't growing their dividend over time, if they've got a five, 6% yield, um, does that even move the needle? Are you moving? Well, I'm going to go with my, all, all my money in a GIC versus getting, you know, five or 6% in a stodgy dividend payer. Um, Again, we're not even looking at those companies, so it doesn't really even factor into our analysis. I mean, you're getting a company, say, with a 2 3% yield that's increasing that 10 to 15% every year. That's going to fight inflation. Those are the stocks we would buy, whether there's inflation, deflation, uh, you've got a steady state. Uh, either way, they're just good companies that are generating cash flow, growing their dividend. The fact they're growing their dividend tells you they're increasing their cash flow over time because that allows them to do that. Those are just great companies and businesses to own in any time. That's why we have you build that portfolio that way, regardless of what is going on in the market conditions. But it is good to talk about what is going on in the market and tell you why we're doing it this way on behalf of our clients. So let's get into our Your Stock, Our Take. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. Um, do you want me to take CECOM, the first one, or Aaron, do you want to go into EPAM? Sure, I can uh, I can start off with EPAM here. Sure. EPAM Systems. I'm going to talk about a company, EPAM Systems, here. Um, so this is a company that is connected to the crisis in the Ukraine right now. And it's also a company that we've recommended in the past. We've had coverage on. I've talked about it uh, recently because it is a tech company that has pulled back with the market. And it's something that I was keeping an eye on, potentially with the idea of a re um reinstituting our buy recommendation. So EPAM, it trades at a price of about $220 right now. And what the company does is, is they're what we would refer to as a digitalization company. They provide software engineering services to their clients, which are enterprises and large organizations. And they essentially help their clients implement advanced technologies like AI and automation. Really what they're doing is they're helping their clients adapt to a digitalized world, helping them become more efficient and more competitive. So as I said, EPAM is a company that is very much involved in what's happening in in Ukraine right now. Uh, The reason for that is Ukraine is in fact home to a large percentage of the company's employees. So about 50% of EPAM's productive capacity was coming out of Ukraine. And one of the reasons why I'm talking about it today is because I have brought the company up uh, several times over the past few months and people have been asking me about it. I've received several emails about it uh, and, and questions, phone calls. So I feel that it's probably a good time to just give some history of the company with respect to our coverage and how we feel about it right now, given the current 
uh, situation. So our, our initially, we, we picked up coverage on this company back in November of 2018. We recommended it at about $123. It was a fantastic story, providing critical services in a high growth market and producing substantial cash flow. We did put a hold rating on the stock back in May of 2020, and this is partly due to uncertainties caused by the pandemic. And even management of EPAM, they had taken their guidance off the table. They saw a lot of uncertainties with respect to their own growth outlook. Uh, in addition to this, the valuation was also much more expensive than it was when we originally recommended. It was up almost about double from our original recommendation. So we felt there's a lot of uncertainty, there's higher valuation, we're going to put the stock at a, at a hold. But the company, even the company underestimated the need for its own services during the pandemic and its growth only accelerated. The company last year grew its, its revenues, its earnings about 50%. It had hit a high back in last November before the tech sector overall started pulling back a high of about $720. And this was a situation where we continue to love the business, but the valuation it hit frothy levels at its peak about 80, 90 times earnings. So even though revenues were growing at 50%, we thought that was unsustainable even for a company like EPAM. And we put out a note at the end of 2020 instructing holders of the stock that we still like the company long term, but if you had made a strong return, uh, doubled, tripled your money, then you should probably take some of the profits off the table just even to rebalance the stock back in your portfolio. So this is a company that we were keeping a close eye on as it's been pulling back since November. As of about two weeks ago, the stock was down 35% from its high, and the valuation started to look a lot more attractive. Uh, shortly afterwards, EPAM came up with their Q4 results. The numbers looked very good. The guidance for the current year continued to be strong, about 35% growth in revenue, 25% growth in earnings per share. And of course, the topic of uh, the company's exposure to the Ukraine and a potential war situation there came up in the conference call at the time. Nobody was really expecting that the invasion would turn out like it did. The expectation would, was more for some fighting perhaps along the, the eastern frontier. Nobody was really expecting a full invasion. So the company had a plan in place. Uh, they had stated that they had been dealing with um, you know, conflict with Russia for basically eight years since Russia had, had invaded the Crimea. So they had a plan in place. And they were still optimistic that they were going to be able to keep their people safe um, during this period of time, even if there was, uh, even if even if a war did break out with Russia. Once again, expecting that it would not be anywhere near um, what we're seeing right now. So my my thoughts at the time, I was a little bit worried, even though I I also did not expect that things would turn out the way that they did, uh, and that it would be a full on invasion of Ukraine. I still. Was, was concerned about the situation, the uncertainties there. So I decided to wait. But I did feel at the time that three, $350 to $400, the valuation started to look more attractive. However, um, with this full-scale invasion of Ukraine from Russia and all of the, the I mean, all of the destruction in the country, the, the, the everything that's going on, um, the stock has understandably taken a, a major hit as well, understandably. It was down about 45% a single day on Monday. Uh, and I don't think that that is necessarily uh, the market misinterpreting the situation. It is absolutely a tragic situation in the Ukraine. And I don't know, I, I would imagine that the vast majority of the company's software engineers in the Ukraine are not in any way focused on 
anything that the company is doing. I imagine that they are focused more on the majority of them, um, the defense of their own country and the safety of their of their family and and their 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 fellow country people. So I, you know, right now I do think it is a very interesting company. I would wait until the the next quarter to get an update from management. It, there's really a lot of uncertainties in terms of the services that the company provides. Absolutely critical, and I'm sure that they are offering some of these services as well to the government of Ukraine to help them. But right now, in terms of an investment, we would just continue to hold. Really, a lot of uncertainty. We want to see what's going on. We wouldn't necessarily be buyers of the stock, but I'm 100. percent I'm 100% confident that the company will eventually um, get as many of its people to safety as possible. And over time, over the next several years, we'll, we'll rebuild any lost parts of its business. So, um, you know, our hearts go out to, to all the people in the Ukraine. And we just really hope that, uh, that the, the situation improves from here. Yes, yeah, it's a good synopsis of a difficult situation. I'm going to move on to our second Your Stock, Our Take. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. On CECOM Satellite Systems, symbol CMI in the TSX Venture, trades around 215, 214, market cap of around 87 million. This is a company that we recommended years ago when it traded back in the 40 cent range and subsequently sold. Um, you know, it's a good solid business. The company's a leader in the development and deployment of commercial grade mobile auto deployment satellite based technology for the delivery of two way high speed internet, VoIP, and video services into vehicles. Now, let's look at the recent financials. Uh, the company has been hit during the pandemic. Seacom's revenue dropped 42.9% to $1.01 million from $1.77 million in the third fiscal quarter. Our revenues for the nine months of this year were up around 61% to $6.57 million from $4.08 the company posted a net loss in its last quarter, about 157,000. Year-to-date net income was 1.1 million. That compared to a loss in the same period of last year of around 400,000. Now, the company on January 11th did announce a three million dollar U.S. Uh, orders in orders for its iNet View antenna systems. So that is definitely a positive. The company sees rebounding uh, sales and business from around the world uh, in its 2022 fiscal year, the, cur- the current year. So that is a good thing. The balance sheet here is solid. Uh, they have cash and cash equivalents of about $16.5 million with no real debt. So if we look at the valuations, we're going to take out that cash around $0.39 cents per share that is cash on hand. The company still trades at around 50 times trailing earnings. Now, again, we recognize that COVID-related slowdown has depressed revenues near term. It's likely that revenues and earnings pick up over the next 12 to 24 months. But at present, CECOM trades at high valuations. Again, it's a solid business, pays a solid dividend. At this time, it's paying that from the cash on hand. As we said, it was uh, negative in terms of profitability in the last quarter. They do continue to innovate and invest in the next generation of their products. That's what you can do when business is down and you have a good, strong balance sheet. And there's a number of strong patents in the business. In a normalized period, uh, the company has better cash flow. 
but we do see quarterly numbers being volatile overall. The results this year should be better than last year. But again, the company still trades at a premium. We will monitor the business, see if there is an entry point, but it's pricey on a trailing basis given the lumpy nature historically of its quarterly results. We do see the company as a potential takeover target at some point, but do not recommend purchasing just based on takeover target potential because uh, that could occur one year from now or 10 years from now. So we'll monitor the company at this point. Uh, we don't think it's an entry point right now. And one of the things that we we tend to look for is we like to find companies where we have a good sense of where earnings and revenues are trending over the next two, three, four, or five years and beyond. And that's one of the issues with some of these companies that are more contract-based, lumpy, is that there's really a lot of volatility up and down. And it's difficult to know exactly. I mean, if you have a good sense of the competitiveness of their technology, um, that helps. But it's it's having you know lumpy performance makes it really difficult to to know where earnings and revenues are going to be three years from now yeah and, and if you look like that three million dollar us orders that they're going to deliver over the next couple quarters that will boost results in the short term they need follow-on orders to continue that over time and you know if we see those then it starts to look more attractive but you know there's if you get you know one great quarter followed up by a weak quarter, a great quarter, it, the market tends to not value those companies uh, with a premium. Right now, it's getting a premium, uh, likely because of the balance sheet there, and it continues to pay that dividend. And the market is looking for better results going forward. But uh, we'd say that there's a little risk in, in these current market conditions. That uh, and the or, orders have been solid in the last couple months. But they're not to the point where uh, we would say that we can sustainably see growth for the next two or three years going forward, which we'd need to say to see to be a buyer. Uh, Brennan, yes, you're going to take uh, your stock. Our take on Lucera. It's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call your stock. Our take: buy, sell, or hold. You betcha. In your favorite so, sector, Lu the diamond sector, right? Yeah, I do like the diamond sector. Brennan's in the market for diamonds. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, diamond rings. I, I wouldn't say. I <sighs> wouldn't say yet. They're girl's I would best say friend, that, uh, Brennan. I, I would say that Ryan's <laughs> uh, prediction is going to be wrong here for uh, me acquiring a girlfriend <laughs> over the the year. But we'll we'll see. Let's we'll see. not There's get still, into uh, that. The years, the years young. <laughs> I'm right. I I think I'm dead right. So that's all. Let's go. Yeah. Okay, so Lucera Diamond Corp, LUC on the TSX, currently trading at a price of about 68 cents and has a market cap of about $317 million. So Lucera is a leading independent producer of large, exceptional quality type 2A diamonds from its Carowee mine in Botswana. And it also owns a 100% interest in Clara Diamond Solutions, a secure digital sales platform positioned to modernize the existing diamond supply chain and ensure diamond provenance from mine to finger. That's definitely becoming a more important thing is people want to know where those diamonds are coming from, actually. So looking at uh, some key points here. In the fall of 2019, right before the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, Lucera suspended its regular dividend with the announcement of a positive feasibility study for uh, for development of an underground mine at Carowee. Uh, so they're going to be using that cash that they were paying out in a dividend to help fund this. Now, the Carowee underground expansion project will extend the mine life to at least 2040 and will add approximately $4 billion in revenue over its life. Uh, the 
the company's board of director, directors formally approved the project, uh, which has a 534 million capital cost and a five-year construction period. And the mine ramp up is expected to be in 2026. And the company is funding this uh, with quite a bit of debt where they have recently secured a $220 million senior secured uh, debt facility. Uh, and then as well, just recently, they did do a couple of equity financings, uh, which were closed that generated net proceeds of about $31.3 million uh, from the sale of 55 million common shares at a price of 75 cents per share. Now, compared to 2020, uh, the diamond price recovery began in the fourth quarter of 2020 and had largely improved to pre-pandemic levels by the end of 2021 owing to strengthening diamond jewelry demand against a backdrop of declining global supply. So that's what I do think is interesting about the diamond sector is just what I said there, that backdrop of declining globally mined supplied diamonds. Um, so the diamond market is very dynamic and has changed drastically over the last decade. So number one, we are seeing lab-created diamonds enter the market and grow at a significant pace. Now, people must understand that these lab-created diamonds are literally perfect uh, substitutes. They are just compressed carbon. Um, so they, there's nothing different about them from a mined diamond other than uh, just that they're created in a lab. Uh, these diamonds are also cheaper and they don't have you know, the sustainability implications and they are starting to take uh, a share of the market. So in 2018, uh, lab-grown diamonds as a percentage of the total diamond market were about 3.4%. In 2021, Paul Zimniski, a diamond analyst, says, says that it was about 7.5% of the overall market. And in 2025, the forecast is that lab-grown diamonds are going to be about 11.5%. So they are you know, starting to eat up some market share. Now, number two here, looking at the diamond market, rough diamond supply is at a multi-decade low because of mine closures, uh, such as Rio Tinto's Argyle Mine, which was in operation since the 80s, which recently just closed in 2020. Now, this low supply is anticipated to remain relatively low through 2027, as there are very few new diamond mines anticipated to come online through this decade. Uh, that's the interesting thing, again, about, you know, diamonds is there's not that many mines out there in the world. I believe there's, you know, just over 30 some mines actively in the world. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a little bit easier to forecast supply going forward. So looking at the company's recent financial results for Q4 of 2021, uh, revenue was $57.9 million, an increase of 37% over the previous year. And this was primarily you know, due to pent-up demand, as well as the average price per carat sold increased to about $560 per carat, a 39% increase over the previous year. Uh, net income was $1.7 million compared to a loss in Q4 of 2020. And fiscal 2021, so this is for the full year, adjusted EBITDA was about 102.5 million. The company has about $27 million in cash and debt was 46.7 million. And on a valuation basis, they are trading with a trailing enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of just 2.5 times. Uh, the company did provide some 2022 revenue guidance of between 195 to 225 million, which is or which would represent a slight decrease from what they posted in 2021 of uh, 230 million. So our take here. Now, Lucera and the current state of the diamond industry definitely fascinate me. First, on the diamond industry, demand is strong coming out of the pandemic due to pent-up demand and consumers' desire for diamond jewelry. And on the supply side, we are seeing cheaper lab-created diamonds, which are a perfect substitute to mine diamonds, begin to grab market share. 
all while mined rough diamond supply is expected to plateau through the end of this decade due to limited new diamond mines coming online. Now, with Lucera specifically, on the other hand, the company trades with extremely low valuations and has a path to growth ahead of it with its underground expansion project, which will extend the mine life to at least 2040 and is anticipated to come online in 2026. Now, though the company does have work ahead of it to fund the $500 million capex of the underground project and will likely have margins reduced in the mid to near term because of this expansion, considering both the demand for diamonds and the dwindling supply of real mine diamonds, I think there could be a case to be made that the stock offers value in its current range. It is, however, a high-risk stock. The diamond industry is changing with lab-created diamonds, but you know it is of my opinion that mine diamonds will remain a significant part of the industry through the end of this century, you know, especially large high quality stones such as produced at Carraway. Now, the last thing that I do want to just add, I didn't write this down, but, uh, you know, I, it kind of brings it full circle to the war in Eastern Europe. Now, there are three primary diamond players in the market. That is Russian uh, state-owned El Rosa, which owns about 28% of the market, De Beers, and then Rio Tinto. The sanctions on Russia and El Rosa, you know, could potentially make uh, some more implications for the supply uh, in in the world, just depending on if they're not able to uh, supply their diamonds to, I, I guess, uh, the world in general. Just it, it, I don't know what, you know, those sanctions would do, um, but it is going to be interesting in at least the near term uh, what those sanctions could do to the diamond market and potentially push up uh, prices um, even more in the near term. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, it's an interesting business. Uh, you know, they could have the wind behind their sales, but again, it is, you know, relying on a commodity uh, and there's definitely a uh, risk there. There's no doubt. And certainly a concern, as you mentioned, that artificial diamonds are starting to become more economic and more widespread as well. Would you care, Aaron, if it was a lab-created diamond or mined diamond? I'm not the right person to ask. The question is who's, who's getting the diamond? Right, they're the ones that. Uh, well, somebody may propose to you someday. Right? Uh, I'm already married, so the answer <laughs> would be no. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it really comes know, down. I, I, I it, it as a buyer, would it would it matter to you? And I, I get. I would have saying, to ask the person that I was giving it to, yeah. like if I was buying but a we, diamond. You know what? This is a project. You go ask, and then. But Brennan, would would it matter to you? Probably not, especially if I was going to you know save money. Um, or, you know, my significant other was going to save money, you know, yeah. um, but it, it is, you know, an interesting question. And I even remember bringing it up to you guys in 2019 and asking you guys that. And, you know, it is. I do wonder. Yeah, I, I do wonder yeah. if like millennials, people who will be, you know, and, and like my son's generation right yeah. like whether they will be eric's generation whether they will care i'll ask they him, may you may even get to a point where people prefer yeah artificial prefer. diamonds yeah. yeah because it's not you know there's no blood diamond totally. right there's no yeah and and can it be preferred so if that happens i think you know the mine i mean it costs a hell of a lot more to produce it that way as For far sure. as i understand right even even if you're producing like these Ma or you're finding these massive diamonds that uh, Lucara can find. I mean, I think that on a valuation basis, on a price to earnings basis, it looks interesting right now. But I have to say, though, funding that 500 million capex right now, it's not the best time for this company to be going to the market. I mean, it, you look at the stock price in the last five years, 
um, you know, five years ago, the share price traded uh, just around the three dollar range, right? And you know, when does you know even even back in 2019, it traded in you know uh, it's just 2018, it was in the two dollar range. 2019, a buck fifty or above, and you know, it's just this is one of the lowest rates other than right at the you know basically when the pandemic hit the the lowest price it's traded at uh, if you're using equity you're diluting far more than they would have if this uh you know project was uh, done four or five years ago right totally so i mean it's price earnings ratio looks quite low right now yeah it does it, it looks quite attractive and you know from the bounce back but you know how you have those two things is the market balancing wow um are lab created diamonds going to really push forward and become a huge part of the market and they can be created far easier and uh and does the sentiment shift towards i actually you know the next generation actually prefers the lab to the uh you know mine diamonds that create uh, many issues, right? Uh, environmentally, so for sure. Yeah. Anyways, that's if, it's something to keep. In I mind could just add sure. one more thing. You know, it is kind of interesting, and I've read papers on it where De Beers to try to protect the natural value of, uh, or to protect the value of mine diamonds. They're kind of doing a predatory pricing strategy. They ended up coming out with uh, their own lab created diamond line called Lightbox, where they're selling about, okay. I believe it's uh, two carat diamonds for about. $800. So they're really trying to undercut the market. So it's just, it's interesting, you know, seeing another step into Beers' marketing playbook. Who, who knows if it will be successful? In my opinion, I do agree with, you know, you guys, where I, I kind of think that lab created diamonds will become, uh, will, will surpass naturally mined diamonds, uh, you know, in the future. Um, I, I do think that that will happen and mined diamonds might become more niche. Um, but yeah, it's definitely interesting to look at, you know, De Beers's marketing playbook and seeing how they're, you know, they've came out with Lightbox and they're really trying to preserve that, uh, you know, the price premium right now for mine diamonds. Um, but who knows what will happen to that premium going forward? Yeah, it's quite the tactic. Okay, well, I think that closes off our show. Uh, keep your questions coming into our Your Stock, Our Take segment. Uh, we'll answer questions on and debate individual companies if you send those questions in. Uh, thanks for sending us in. Rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us produce this content on a weekly basis. Again, I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Brennan and Aaron, for hosting with me. And I wish you, as always, profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.